The Power of One is brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, available only on Amazon Prime Video. If you think about it, there's really one episode at the center of the Russia investigation. The notorious 2016 meeting at Trump Tower, where Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and then campaign chair that Donald Trump Jr. attended months before the election with a Russian lawyer who now admits to being a Russian informant. In the spring of 2018, a mild-mannered Russian tax lawyer who died years earlier in a Moscow prison became the unlikely focus of discussion over what's now simply called the Trump Tower meeting. Documents released by the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee had just revealed the Russian agenda in that meeting. It wasn't dirt on Hillary Clinton. It was the lifting of the Magnitsky sanctions. That they may now have success with the Magnitsky Act. Given the measure was named the, the Magnitsky Act after the lawyer, uh, Sergei Magnitsky. That was after his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered an alleged tax fraud in Moscow. Sergei Magnitsky is the Moscow-based tax auditor who, in the course of doing his job, discovered $230 million worth of corruption in Vladimir Putin's government. He uncovered it, and then, fatally for him, he reported it. His subsequent torture and murder by Russian authorities in November 2009, 10 years ago this month, became an international story. In 2012, the U.S. government passed the Magnitsky Act, that's a form of sanctions that bans those found complicit in Magnitsky's killing from visiting the U.S. It also freezes their financial assets. Within five years, at least 44 Russians had been sanctioned. A subsequent global Magnitsky Act applied the tactic to perpetrators of human rights atrocities anywhere in the world. Other countries have followed suit, including Canada. And Sergei Magnitsky's name has appeared in many more news stories in the past year. Congress has already suggested is these global Magnitsky sanctions. These are human rights sanctions that can be placed on individuals who are allegedly involved in this uh, murder of the Saudi journalist. That would be a the step forward. The U.S. Treasury has announced sanctions on Ajay Gupta, Atul Gupta, Rajesh Gupta, and Salim Issa for their involvement in a significant corruption network in... If Russian authorities imprisoned Sergei Magnitsky in hopes that he would go away, it didn't really work. Magnitsky is at this point the best-known, most-talked-about tax lawyer in the world, and surely the only one whose name is synonymous with fighting corruption. You are listening to The Power of One, a podcast devoted to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who changed their world and ours. I'm your host, Sarmishta Subramanian. This week, we bring you the story of Sergei Magnitsky and the tale of the man who is making sure the world never forgets the Magnitsky name, Bill Browder. You may recognize Bill Browder's name from stories about the Magnitsky Act, or from his best-selling book, Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. Or you may recall it from another equally infamous Trump-related meeting. That was the one in Helsinki in July 2018, after which Vladimir Putin offered to hand over for questioning 12 Russian intelligence officials indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller. The quid pro quo he requested, there's that pesky phrase again, was that the U.S. turn over to his government a man he simply called Mr. Browder. Mr. Browder have earned over $1.5 billion in Russia 
Putin is not a man known for being kind to his detractors, but he seems to hold a special animus for this one. Browder, who's a British citizen, can criticize Putin openly, and he does, often. But more than that, there's what Browder has accomplished. It's thanks to his tireless activism that Magnitsky laws have been adopted in six countries and are now being considered in many others. And Vladimir Putin is a guy who values money more than human life. And so for a person who values money so highly, and now we've come up with a tool that puts his money at risk, that's devastating. That hits him right in the Achilles heel. Bill Browder's foray into planet Russia began in more auspicious circumstances. It was 1996. Browder was a financier who'd increasingly become interested in emerging markets. He saw opportunity in Russia and headed east, starting a firm in Moscow that he called the Hermitage Fund. He was one of the earliest foreign investors in post-Soviet Russia, and by year 2005, he was one of the wealthiest, running the country's largest foreign investment fund. Well, my my original um, uh, attraction to Russia was that the uh, the country was going through a radical uh, transformation from communism to capitalism. And as part of that transformation, they were taking all property that previously belonged to the state and gave it away to the people of Russia for free. And then it started to, the the shares of companies started to trade on stock exchanges and shares were trading at a 99.7% discount um, to shares of comparable companies in the West. And so I was seeing this and, and seeing the economic opportunity as a businessman, as an investor, and it was pretty exciting. It was like, uh, I can imagine it was like going out to the Wild West during the gold rush and, you know, prospecting for gold and hitting a vein. And, and literally, you know, you could buy a stock on a Monday and then on a Friday it would be worth 10 times as much. You could really make a lot of money. And, and um, I and many other people did um, until, until it turned out that, that it was more of a mirage and illusion than anything else. For ordinary citizens, that mirage may have been apparent earlier. The country's clumsy, haphazard shift to the free market lured enterprising Western investors, as well as well-connected local entrepreneurs who'd soon become Russia's oligarchs. But it didn't exactly serve most Russians. It was an era of what Rajan Menon, a Russia expert and a political scientist at the City University of New York, calls a buccaneer capitalism. There was no rule of law entrenched. And the old Soviet elite morphed into, shall we say, almost predatory capitalists. And there were other people along the way that might not have been connected with the Soviet power structure, but who knew how to make a quick buck. It was a system practically created to be rigged. The big um, problem that we faced in Russia before it got really bad was that the companies that we were investing in some of the biggest companies like the gas company, Gazprom, and other companies were being run not for the benefit of the shareholders, but, but for the benefit of corrupt officials and oligarchs who were stealing all the assets and all the money out of the companies. And so I had to do something about it, and I decided that the best thing I could do would be to research how they were doing the stealing and then Uh, take that research to the international media, to the Financial Times, to the New York Times, etc. If Bill Browder started as a buccaneer capitalist, he had stumbled into a kind of activism against corruption and poor corporate governance. Oligarch-controlled companies ran eccentrically, to say the least. 
One day, an oil company might wipe out $87 million from Hermitage's minority stake. Another day, Browder might discover a huge resource company had sold gas fields at bargain bin prices to oligarchs. He began ferreting out these practices. He made hundreds of millions of dollars off the opportunities, and he alerted the press to the shady practices. One of the journalists in Moscow who exposed the corruption in Russia was Christian Freeland, today Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs, then Moscow Bureau Chief for the Financial Times. And for a while, this naming and shaming campaign worked, and it worked for a very unusual reason, which was that Vladimir Putin, who had just come to power, was fighting with the same people I was fighting with. Um, The Russian oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money for me and my investors. And so we had this alignment of interest. Vladimir Putin wanted to wipe out the oligarchs. And so every time I would name them and shame them, he would step in and he would do something to try to weaken them further. Of course, cracking down on corruption did not turn out to be Putin's ultimate goal. At the end of 2003, Putin decided to win his war with the oligarchs. And the way that he went about doing that was to arrest the richest oligarch in the country, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He was worth about $15 billion. And Putin arrested him off of his private jet in Siberia, took him back to Moscow, put him on trial. Put, when, when, when you're on trial, they put you in a cage. And, um, and they allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial, sitting in a cage. And so imagine you're the 17th richest person in Russia. You've um, uh, turned on your television set, and you see a guy far richer, far more powerful, and far smarter than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? You don't want to sit in that cage yourself. The Hodorkovsky case marked a turning point in the country's story. It wasn't just the other oligarchs. Many Russians were stunned by the arrest. Putin had drawn a line in the sand, and not even the wealthiest and most powerful of Russians could cross it. Here's Rajan Menon again. Putin was okay with oligarchs. The red line for him was if they played politics, especially in a way that was anti-system politically. And Khodorkovsky was seen as somebody who was starting to do that. That was his downfall, as opposed to the fact that he'd made a lot of money. In fact, there's a famous meeting that uh, President Putin had with the oligarchs in which he says, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, how you do your business is less of a concern of mine, but stay out of the political arena. Hey, I'm Kyle Fulton. I'm the producer of Power of One, and I wanted to tell you a bit about the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. He's not your typical hero, but the political fate of the nation rests in his hands. John Krasinski returns as the titular CIA officer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. The latest season takes the former analyst to South America to solve a global conspiracy that spans the UK, Russia, Venezuela, and back home in the US. Follow along the action-packed mission in the new season, now available on Prime Video. For Bill Browder, it represented a new chapter. In his words, the oligarchs were no longer Putin's enemies. Putin had found a way to work with them quite profitably. And a man who continued to go around exposing their misdeeds was no longer welcome in Russia. And so in November of 2005, I was expelled from the country. I was declared a threat to national security. Fortunately, we had, um, uh, after I'd been kicked out, we were able to liquidate our portfolio in Russia. That was more than $4 billion, quietly moved out of the country. 
And then after that, my offices were raided in Moscow. My law firm's offices were raided in Moscow. The police were looking to seize all of the um, corporate registration documents of our investment holding companies through which we had invested in Russia. And they found them at our law firm. And this was the point that I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to help me figure out why this was happening and what their objectives were. Sergei Magnitsky was a Russian lawyer. He was 35 years old. He worked for an American law firm. And he was one of these people who could do 10, th- 10 legal tasks the time it took others to do one. He was a genius. And Sergei went to work to look for what this was all about. And he eventually came back and said, I figured it out. Sergei Magnitsky was the head of tax at Firestone Duncan, the law and accounting firm used by Browder's company. Here's Jameson Firestone, Magnitsky's boss and the company's founder. Yeah, first of all, he was brilliant. Um, and he was, his whole department looked up to him. I mean, he was kind of a mentor um, uh, figure for everybody who worked under him. I mean, he, was, he really had a belief in that Russia was going in the right direction and that it was, that there was law in Russia and that, and that it was going to be a law abiding country. So you could actually do things correctly, uh, which is something he told all of our clients, but it's also something that he demonstrated to all the people who worked for him by playing by the book and going out and, you know, challenging authorities in very, very intense situations and winning consistently. Those skirmishes with the authorities were simply part of the job. Firestone says it was common for clients to be hit with notices of large tax amounts owing, out of the blue. These could be challenged in court. But the authorities would threaten to open a criminal case, superseding the civil court hearing, and then convict them for not paying tax. Conviction rates were high, and conviction meant prison. Russian prison. And they would do this to American clients who live in America and work in Russia. And so uh, but our clients actually trusted Sergei so much that they would fly back to Russia just to be with him through the legal proceedings and then fly out, uh, literally putting their freedom in his hands. And, and he always won. People really trusted him uh, because he, was, he knew what he was doing and he was honest and he you know, gave people confidence. When Magnitsky first began investigating the theft of the three Hermitage companies, that must have seemed equally uncontroversial. We had no idea why the companies had been hijacked, but on the basis of the information Sergei found, on December 3rd of 2007, Hermitage filed a 145-page complaint, uh, which essentially said, help, help, help. Uh, our companies have been stolen and huge debts have been created against them. The companies had been re-registered to a new owner, and the new owner claimed that the companies had in fact run at a loss. Magnitsky then uncovered the why. He outlined a two-part scam, Browder says. The officials stole the companies to steal Browder's money. But Browder had already liquidated the funds and taken the money out of Russia. So they tried something different. And the second part of the scam was something that Sergei described as being the most cynical thing he had ever seen. And, and as a Russian lawyer, he's seen a lot of cynical things. And what the second part of the scam was, was that um, when we had sold all of our securities after I was kicked out, and before the office raid happened, we had a large profit. We had a billion dollars of profit. And on that billion dollars of profit, we paid $230 million of capital gains tax to the Russian government. 
And what Sergei had discovered was that this group of corrupt police officers, corrupt officials, and organized criminals had worked together to orchestrate a scam where they went with our stolen companies back to the tax authorities of Russia and applied for an illegal $230 million tax refund. They applied for it was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia, $230 million. They applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007, and it was approved and paid out the next day, which was Christmas Eve. That may take a moment to digest. In a country as bureaucratic as Russia, in a business as bureaucratic as taxation, an application for a tax refund was approved and the money paid out within a day, the day before Christmas. Sergey and I were convinced that this must be a rogue operation. Surely Vladimir Putin wouldn't have authorized this. This wasn't the theft of money from me. This was the theft of money from the Russian government. And Putin is a, a populist and a nationalist, and he certainly wouldn't want that, right? So we, we, um, we thought, well, okay, if it's a rogue operation, let's expose it. And so um, we wrote criminal complaints to every different branch of Russian law enforcement. I went to the media, to the newspapers, radio, television, telling the story. And Sergei um, gave sworn testimony at the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their version of the FBI. And we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Problem was, in Putin's Russia, uh, there are no good guys. And um, five weeks after Sergei testified, the same officers he testified against came to his home on the 24th of November, 2008. They arrested him. Nobody had expected this. Least of all, Sergei Magnitsky. Here's Jameson Firestone. I don't think he ever thought that he would be arrested. I mean, how could he be arrested? He was outside counsel. In the weeks leading up to his arrest, though, Bill Browder and his colleagues had grown concerned. Browder's two other lawyers had narrowly avoided arrest by teams of waiting police officers, and with Browder's help, fled the country. Browder warned Magnitsky, too. And then I went to Sergei, and I said, Sergei, after these guys, you're next. And Sergei said, no, I've done nothing wrong. This is not 1937, referring to the year, the Stalin times in Russia. I'm going to stay here. Um, the law will protect me. But because of his idealism, because he thought he wanted Russia to be a better place, he effectively gave his life for that. And it's very hard for me and all the people who know Sergei um, to come to terms with that. Sergei Magnitsky was arrested in November 2008 on suspicion of assisting tax evasion. What followed over the next year defied any sense of proportion for that crime, or any crime. They put him in pretrial detention, and in pretrial detention, he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with uh, 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Uh, they put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells uh, with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They'd move him from cell to cell to cell. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million, and he did so on my instruction. And they figured, here's a, a guy who 
who um, buys a Starbucks in the morning and wears a blue suit and a red tie and works in a fancy American law firm, put him in with a bunch of hardened criminals in these terrible conditions, and within a week, he'll buckle. But they completely misjudge Sergei Magnitsky. He may not look like a tough guy, but for him, his principles, his integrity were, were far more important than the physical pain they were inflicting on him. And he absolutely refused to perjure himself and bear false witness. And um, as a result, the torture got worse and worse and worse. And then Magnitsky became very sick. He ended up losing uh, 20 kilos. He developed terrible pains in his stomach. And he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. About a week before the operation, they came to him again. Again, asked him to find a, sign a false confession. Again, he refused. And in retaliation, they moved him from the prison that had a medical wing to a new, uh, not a new prison, but an old, I should say, uh, maximum security prison called Butyrka. So it's like a historic medieval prison considered to be one of the most horrific prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, there, were no med- there was no medical wing to treat his ailment. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He went into terrible, constant, agonizing, ear-piercing pain. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests for medical attention, which were all either ignored or denied in writing. And then on the night of November 16, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore, and so they put him in an ambulance and they sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. When he arrived at the other prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, they chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons came into that cell and beat Sergei Magnitsky until he died. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That was 10 years ago, um, November 16, 2009. And... Uh, the morning when I got that news, which was the next morning, um, it completely changed my life. It was uh, the most horrifying, life-changing, heartbreaking news I could have ever gotten. Sergei Magnitsky joined a terrible fellowship of scientists, bureaucrats, journalists, authors, human rights activists, politicians, and business leaders who have died mysteriously or disappeared into Russia's prison system. With one serious difference, Magnitsky was able to shine an industrial-grade floodlight on the atrocities perpetrated against him. He kept a prison diary, he wrote letters, he filed official complaints, a lot of complaints. He wrote 450 complaints in his 358 days in detention, documenting who did what to him, where, how, um, uh, when, and why, and, and what, which, right, which laws were violated at that moment in time. And he wrote these complaints, and once a month or so, he would take these handwritten complaints, hand them to his lawyer, who would file them, and the authorities would never do anything with them. They would always just ignore or reject them, but we got copies of them. And as a result of that, we have the most granular, detailed case of human rights abuses come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that, when I started to go around the world to tell the story, I wasn't just 
talking off my head. Uh, I was t- out of my head. I was talking with documents, which were his own testimony from the grave. We gave one of these um, complaints, which which was like a very heartbreaking complaint about his conditions and, and oppression, and and we gave it to the Novaya Gazeta newspaper, which is one of the last residual opposition newspapers in Russia that still exists. And they published it on the front page, and and everybody stopped doing what they're doing and read this, and and their hearts broke to say, you know, they couldn't believe it. it. You know, people thought that we that that Stalinism had ended back in the 1940s, but here you were, and and this was now 2009. Uh, Sergei Magnitsky describing exactly the same situation in Russian prisons. Magnitsky's last medical diagnosis was acute psychosis and delirium of persecution. The injustice didn't end with his death. Eventually, an investigation was conducted and 20 prison officials were fired. But 19 of them, Browder wrote in Red Notice, had nothing to do with Magnitsky's death. Some of them lived hundreds of miles away. In a final absurdity, there was a posthumous trial for Sergei Magnitsky that was like something out of a short story by Gogol. The verdict? Guilty. But Magnitsky's death galvanized those close to him. Browder, Firestone, and others spent the next several years chasing that $230 million. They exposed the culpable officials in a string of online videos. They launched a global campaign to put diplomatic pressure on Russia to prosecute them. In 2011, the U.S. placed 60 officials linked to Magnitsky's death on a visa ban list. For the Browder camp, the next step was sanctions. Sanctions are a complex tool, to put it simply. Broad sanctions imposed against a state have effects that are hard to predict and aren't always desirable. Here's Professor Rajan Menon. When you apply pressure on states, if what you're trying to change is behavior to which they accord a high value, then the pain has to become really intense for them to change. And Ukraine as of now, is something for which the Putin government is willing to bear a fair amount of pain. I was just in Moscow, and I asked a friend whom I know well and who can be counted upon to be candid, you know, how much are the sanctions hurting? And he said the sanctions are hurting significantly, and they are felt by ordinary people. And it's not surprising that Putin, although still very popular, has experienced a decline in popularity. And so he would like to get out of the sanctions. Uh, but he's in that box for the moment. Targeted sanctions aimed at individuals, on the other hand, work a little differently. There are Russian oligarchs who bought up lots of property, prime real estate and in in places especially like London. Now, the reason they do that in a weird sense is a lack of confidence in the system because this is their plan B. It's partly to make money, but it's also partly to have a plan B in case everything comes crashing down or if they're in the gun sites of the government and they can get out and so on. So it's simultaneously, it's kind of working within the system, but also a vote of confidence against the system. The highly targeted sanctions proposed by Browder took aim at this plan B and the veil of legitimacy that accompanies it. This is such a beautiful tool because it doesn't go after the people of the country who are victims just like every, like Sergei was. They're all being, they're all living in an occupied country, but occupied by criminals. It goes after just the specific criminals at the top of the food chain who are doing all the bad stuff. In 2012, Browder went to Washington to make his case to senior officials. He found a sympathetic audience in Senator Ben Cardin, 
and the late Senator John McCain. Seven years ago this week, in a squalid cell inside the prison that once held the political opponents of the Tsars and the Soviets, Sergei Magnitsky was murdered, defying the tyranny of Vladimir Putin's Russia. Many Americans are not familiar the with Magnitsky the The Magnitsky Act passed Russian that year patriot. with huge bipartisan support. Five years later, Christian Freeland, this time as Canada's foreign minister, again took aim at Russian corruption. The House of Commons unanimously passed the Sergei Magnitsky Law. Sergei Magnitsky's widow, Natalia, and their teenage son, Nikita, came to Canada to express their gratitude. Four other countries followed suit with Magnitsky Laws. Browder is working with the European Parliament now, hoping to get one in place there. People have told me that getting a U.S. law passed is harder than winning the lottery. And I, and I think it was even more true if you say getting a law passed in Canada and the U.K. and Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And so I think that part of the reason that it happened is just because of the power of the story. Sergei Magnitsky's story is just so unbelievable that, and so horrible that anyone who hears it wants to do something about it. And Browder is determined that people hear it. So I've give, given up my profession as a fund manager um, 10 years ago. So all I do is I'm a full-time activist. So the only cost to me are the people who are either trying to kill me, trying to imprison me, or trying to discredit me. And there is a massive um, group of people from Russia, primarily, who are trying to do all three things. That's not an idle concern. In 2010, in a leafy suburb of London, a 43-year-old man named Alexander Perpolishny went out for an evening run, fell to the ground, and died. The coroner ruled he had died from natural causes. But Perpolishny was a fit, relatively young man who'd fled Russia, who'd recently been warned his name was on a hit list, and whose inquest included some evidence that his stomach contained traces of a rare plant toxin. He was also a whistleblower who'd provided evidence to Bill Browder. The woman who approved the lion's share of the tax refund was an official named Olga Stepanova. And Olga Stepanova had a husband named Vladlin Stepanov. And what uh, Perpolichny had was he had the Credit Suisse bank statements which showed that um, Vladlin Stepanov got $11 million from the crime that his wife had approved. And so we um, filed criminal complaints with the Swiss uh, attorney general who froze the accounts. A year later, Perpolichny was dead of natural causes. It was one in a series of deaths or accidents that have befallen parties connected to the Magnitsky case. There's Nikolai Gorokhov, the lawyer who's worked with Magnitsky's widow and his mother. And uh, Nikolai was about to go to court with some unbelievable documents that we had gotten hold of, which basically proved that there was a conspiracy between organized crime and the police to try to cover up the liability of the um, Magnitsky case. And uh, we had WhatsApp messages that had leaked and that he was going to go present in court. And the night before he was going to present the evidence in court, um, he's thrown off a four-story building where he, where he has his apartment. Now, amazingly, Nikolai survived and um, still is with us today, but uh, it was terrifying. There's opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, who accompanied Browder to some of his meetings with the U.S. Congress, but more importantly, was Putin's political opponent. Shot in the back, 
four times, just before midnight Moscow time. Boris Nemtsov was walking with a woman on a bridge close to the Kremlin. A witness says a car stopped and several people shot him. Nemtsov... There's a protege of Nemtsov's who's also worked with Browder on the Magnitsky campaign. Vladimir Karamurza, who is, who is even younger than Sergei, he's just in his mid-30s now, Vladimir was poisoned within an inch of his life um, after visiting the U.S. Congress um, lobbying for the Magnitsky Act. And then when he finally recovered from that and went back to Moscow, he was poisoned again and almost died. Twice they tried to kill him. Wow. It's just un- unbelievable. Browder's fellow travelers on the Magnitsky Trail tend to be outspoken Kremlin critics. Neither position would endear them to the Russian government. As for Browder himself, he says he takes precautions. Russia has requested seven Interpol warrants for his arrest, all rejected by Interpol. He was still picked up last year in Spain, but quickly released. The Magnitsky Acts being debated or passed in various countries continue to be a sore point with the Russians. When the Panama Papers story broke in 2016, documents from the offshore tax haven law firm Mossack Fonseca suggested one possible reason why. Here's Bill Browder. The star of the Russian Panama Papers was a man named Sergei Roldugin. Sergei Roldugin is, was a very interesting character. Um, uh, according to the Panama Papers, he controlled companies that had accumulated $2 billion of capital coming from Russian oligarchs and Russian state banks. And, then every, and everyone would say, well, who is this Sergei Roldugin? And, and when they looked into it, they discovered he's a cellist. Well, why would a cellist be getting $2 billion from Russian oligarchs and state banks? And then when people looked into it a little bit further, they said, ah, oh, <laughs> this is Putin's best friend from childhood and the godfather of Putin's daughters. And it's now commonly acknowledged that Sergei Roldugin, the cellist, is just a nominee for Vladimir Putin because he trusts him. Browder's fight for justice for Sergei Magnitsky has taken him into a broader fight. But what, what we've discovered, and this is quite interesting, is like, for example, 200 million of the 230 million, the, one of the first stops outside of Russia was in a branch, in the Estonian branch of Dansky Bank, a Danish bank um, in Tallinn, Tallinn, Estonia. So we found this money there. And as we've pursued that and tried to get the law enforcement involved and done our research, we started to team up with different investigative journalists and other people. And we discovered that the number wasn't 200 million, but it turned out to be $234 billion of illicit funds flowed from Russia through Dansky Bank's Estonian branch. And that's another reason why the Russians are so angry about the Magnitsky case is because it's exposed everything, not just, not just one crime. Here's how Jameson Firestone puts it. We're, we're kind of shutting down a big party, right? There's been this orgy of dirty money that comes through England, and we all talk about um, how important it is uh, to protect our systems. But in reality, everybody wants that big Russian legal case, and everybody, every real estate broker wants to broker the 50 million pound, uh, you know, real estate house. You know, to my face, lawyers and, and I can say, oh, we so admire what you do. But, but, you know, in reality, they don't, they don't invite me to their, their office parties uh, because they want the Russian clients. They want the Russian business. Browder and his group are still following that $230 million. He says they've frozen $40 million of it so far. But the goal is bigger. They started with the officials involved, but they've moved on to the banks. 
they filed criminal complaints against numerous institutions, including Swedbank in Sweden, two of whose executives were removed last year, and Denmark's Danske Bank. Its CEO resigned in the midst of a broader money laundering investigation and was charged in May. And in some cases, the people who, who receive the money are going to be prosecuted. In other cases, the intermediaries, the enablers, the money launderers get prosecuted. And so there's all sorts of investigations open. There's 16 countries with investigations open, and there's a lot of people whose careers are being ruined, and, and hopefully some people will end up going to jail. And as you can imagine, I'm not very popular among bankers, particularly in the Scandinavian region, because um, that's where a lot of the money flowed um, before it went out to the West. Browder likes to quote a line from Garry Kasparov, the chess legend turned Putin critic. In the modern world, he told a group in Europe recently, we can fight the enemy in banks rather than in tanks. It's a strange place for a financier to have ended up. But Bill Browder's story has been driven by strange countervailing forces, sometimes contradictory, often deeply personal. So my grandfather, Earl Browder, was the head of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. My um, uh, reaction to that as a, when I was a teenager was, was to rebel from that, and I became a capitalist in rebellion for my family of communists. But Earl Browder, who incidentally ran for president against FDR, wasn't just a communist. He was a communist in the era of Stalin. His appointment to the Communist Party of America would need tacit approval from Russia. Well, it's very hard for me to make sense of that. I, I've, um, uh, unfortunately, um, my grandfather's long gone, so I can't ask him the question. And even my father, I would, I would, I would often ask him the question: How could he have, you know, reconciled that? How could, you know, the, during the Stalin purges and stuff? And, you know, I can only imagine that that he had some kind of belief that that um, the ultimate mission was so important that that he could look beyond these terrible injustices. There's Sergei Magnitsky, the man whose story was inextricably bound with Browder's from the moment of his death. He changed Browder, and in a sense, the wider world. I, I would say that if, if Putin wasn't in power today, and when Putin is ultimately not in power, they'll make statues about Sergei Magnitsky because his story is so unbelievable that you have a really an everyman. He's, he, he didn't start out as an activist in any sort. He's just a regular guy doing his job hoping for a better Russia, and he was faced with, with some terrible choices, and he made the choice that, that honesty and dignity and integrity were the most important thing, and he gave his life for that. And, and anybody who, who hears the story and sees this understands that, that, um, you know, he, that he should be Saint Sergei and certainly honored many, for many years to come for, for, for what, he, what he represented, what he did, and, and the sacrifice that he made. You've been listening to The Power of One. Be sure to tune in next week when we bring you the story of the woman who took on some of the globe's toughest arms dealers. You know, in my mind, he was already convicted, but I was absolutely numb and in shock that here was this person who had committed so much evil and had led to so much death, and he was just this ordinary human being in a, now in a very sort of, you know, humiliating and humble situation. The Power of One is brought to you by McLean's in partnership with the Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and co-produced by me, Sarmishta Subramanian. 
Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our researcher is Patricia Treble. Special thanks to Charlie Gillis, Jason Kirby, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, Annalisa Nielsen, Milena Boscovic, Stephanie Phillips, Ryan Clark, and Matthew Morrow. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. See you next week. Download a new weekly episode of The Power of One, brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, only on Prime Video.